guys, welcome back. Thanks for joining me again for the second part of this episode. Uh, if you are listening to this and haven't listened to the first one, I suggest going back and doing that. It is the story of Leslie Morgan Steiner. Um, I haven't been up to a whole lot this week. I finally went back to work fully after being really, really sick for over three weeks. My cough has finally gone, well, kind of gone. It's probably at like a 90%, still get a little bit here and there. Um, so hopefully I'm going to get through this without coughing. Um, so yeah, uh, just wanted to mention one thing this week. Uh, it's something that I've been kind of avoiding commenting on, but I keep getting asked about it. Obviously I have a podcast on domestic abuse. I work as part of the Allstate Foundation Survivor Network for domestic abuse. I post all the time my social media channels on it. Um, and people have been commenting to me and asking me my opinion on this because obviously it's strange that I haven't mentioned it before. And that is, ugh, I hate even saying it, the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial. Um, I think this is like their second trial at this point. Uh, there's so many. They had one in the UK first. Now they have one here in the US. It's just a whole lot. It's just a whole lot. Um, don't want to get into it too much. To be honest, the whole thing is kind of uh, triggering for me. It makes me extremely angry and frustrated and I can't read anything about it anymore. I can't watch any more videos, TikToks. I can't listen to people's opinions about it anymore. But I will say, yes, Amber Heard, definitely something up with that girl. I do believe she is abusive. Um, she kind of, she's just a strange character all over, to be honest with you. But I will say Johnny Depp is every bit as much an abuser as she is. And I 100% believe that. And this is coming from someone who was a huge Johnny Depp fan when I was uh, younger. I was a huge fan of his. Um, and before any of this stuff came out about him, and Amber, I had already not been a fan of his for years and years. I just find him extremely arrogant. Um, his behavior is really strange. I definitely think, I mean, it's it's obvious to me that he's like got a drink and drugs problem. It's very obvious. I think his just behavior is weird. His whole like speaking with a British accent, he's not British thing. Um, I don't think he's that great of an actor. I think he's very one dimensional. If you really study it, I think he plays different versions of the same character in everything that he's in. Um, but I think what annoys me the most about this whole case, because like, obviously he has a huge amount of support and she's getting a huge amount of hate, which I think is unfair in the sense that I think he should be getting every bit as much of a hate as she has. Um, this whole celebrity culture to me is so toxic because... People are so obsessed with this man that they can't see past um, their like love for him and their love for his movies and all the characters that he's played. And it just really gets under my skin. I think that that's the only reason why he isn't getting a lot of hate is because of this and why he has so much support. Um, I see in a lot of his behavior, body language wise and, and what he says and things like that, um, I can pinpoint so many abusive like traits in him 
and things that he said just like trigger me so much and this is why I kind of stay away from it because I just can't like it's so hard to explain but I just everything about it just makes my skin crawl and just gets me angry and like it I just feel anxious even talking about it now I just I'm really uncomfortable talking about it it just really bothers me um and another thing I will say, and this is something that came from like a few years ago when all this was happening first, um, what I really, really didn't like was that all of his exes were questioned about his behavior towards them, like Winona Ryder, um, his ex-wife, I think they were married at least anyway, the woman that he has kids with, um, and they all swore that he'd never been abusive towards them. Oh, this bothers me so much because just because somebody wasn't abusive to you does not mean that they weren't abusive to their future partner. That's not how it works. You know, it's it's just not. And that just even the fact that they were allowed to like use that as evidence, like that's not evidence, you know, and just because like and I adore Winona Ryder but just because she's a famous beloved actress does not mean that like she should be questioned about whether her ex who she hasn't been with for decades was abusive to her or not um and that should not be used against Amber Heard in this abuse trial and again, I will say, yes, Amber Heard, I'm 100% convinced she is also abusive. I think they are just as toxic as each other. Um, but I just wish that people would look past their love and like obsession with Johnny Depp and just see past that and look at the behavior and look at all of the evidence. But... They don't, so I am just not going to comment anymore because I don't want to get into arguments with strangers on the internet about two strangers that I've never met before and will never meet again. I hope to God I never meet any of them again. So that's my take on that. Anyways, I'm going to continue on with part two of last week's episode on Leslie Morgensteiner. Um, If you remember... Where we left off, she had just uh, admitted to her friends, Winnie, that something had been going on, that Connor hits her. So I'm just going to continue right from there. So here we go. One day, Connor brought home his colleague, Ed, who had given him a drive. Leslie knew right away he was different to Connor's other colleagues. She invited him to stay for dinner. Her and Ed hit it off. He was from Boston too. He had also, like Leslie, gone to Harvard. Connor didn't say a word the whole dinner. Leslie knew he'd be really pissed if they kept up the Harvard talk. After that night, Ed and Connor often came home together and stayed for dinner. A year after they moved to Vermont, they started seeing a couples therapist. They hadn't mentioned Connor's attacks yet. They'd never spoken to each other about it either. Talking about it would have made it real. They both really badly needed to believe the attacks were aberrations rather than predictable events that weren't going away by themselves. Leslie had gone to the library to do research on the subject. Some people believed abused women provoked the violence from their spouses. Not true. Nothing Leslie did made Connor hit her. Nothing made him stop. He acted like he knew what he was doing. She was sure he'd hit other girlfriends before her. 
he always threw the first punch or kick. Sometimes she hit him back as hard as she could. These probably just made him angrier and violent faster if he even noticed them. I also think that abusers take um, these like retaliation hits as reason to justify their behavior so they can turn it around on you again. Like for example, I I think two instances that I remember, one that really sticks out in my mind, I slapped my abuser in the face. One time he was like in my face, like screaming at me and I just slapped him and I slapped him so hard. I swear my hand was red and stinging for like two days afterwards. And I never, I've never physically put my hands and I know this is probably the first time that ever happened. But despite everything that he done to me, um, it was always you hit me that was coming from him and you know I remember as well after you know I smacked him and then he immediately like turned into the victim like he you know fell backwards and he he was like acting like he was terrified of me and like cowering into the corner and like all of this like it it was just so obviously like play acting to make it look to make me look even worse you know Um, So I definitely agree with what she's saying here. Sometimes she purposely said nothing, but passivity never stopped him either. It didn't even slow him down. She asked the librarian for any books on the psychology of domestic violence. She thought it a stupid euphemism. Her situation wasn't domestic violence. She read one chapter looking for some connection. It said... Despite the intensely apologetic honeymoon period following each domestic violence incident, every time a man hits a woman, he is saying, I hate you. But Connor had never apologized to her and he didn't hate her. Their relationship was about love, not hate. A few days before Winnie had called to check on her, Leslie said she loved him beyond words. He's brilliant, funny and fascinating. She wanted to be with him forever. She couldn't abandon her soulmate. Winnie said... But that doesn't make it okay okay that he hits you. He has to take responsibility for that and to stop the behaviour. Leslie asked, how am I supposed to get him to stop? But again, it is not your job to get him to stop. And also, I love what Winnie said to her here. That doesn't make it okay that he hits you. Again, it doesn't matter what you do. It is never okay for him to hit you. Winnie said she thought the only way to get him to stop would be to leave him. But Leslie couldn't do that. He'd see it as abandonment and she didn't want to join that long list of women who did that to him. All the statistics in the books were about women. Why wasn't any research being done on why men become abusers? Did the world think violence in a relationship was a woman's fault? Because she caused it? Because she stayed? She had heard the question a million times. Why would any woman stay in a violent relationship? as if only someone really stupid or with no self-respect would take that kind of abuse repeatedly. Why did Leslie stay? She had tried to leave. Leaving was easy. But then she'd leave and have no idea where to go. He lived in her home. He needed their car to go to work to earn money to buy groceries to make their mortgage to pay student loans. But the real reason she stayed was because she loved him. Leaving meant abandoning their life and dreams, the part of her that wasn't afraid to love unconditionally and she could leave that part of herself behind. None of the books asked the questions she thought all the time. Why did Connor attack her? He knew she loved him and wanted to help him, yet he was destroying what they had together. The poison from him was spreading to her. A single point in the book made sense. 
Many abusive men tried to isolate their partners in order to prevent them from leaving. Was that why he had wanted her to move to Vermont? One chapter also warned that the most perilous time in any abused woman's life was when she decided to leave because her abuser had nothing to lose by killing her then. Reading the books had made her feel alone and scared. It is a relief to see all this stuff and to hear this stuff when you first like do research and you realize like you're not alone and this is actually something that happens to a lot of people and it's a pattern it is a relief but it's also completely terrifying to realize that what is happening to you is abuse and you still don't really fully accept that she came home one night from grocery shopping to the sound of pages rustling connor was reading her teenage diary The diary was kept in her filing cabinet with letters and souvenirs from high school. He must have been looking for something. She could only imagine what he would say and do to her when he read some of the descriptions of her drug use, drunken adventures and sexual experimentation. He sat quietly reading. She screamed that it was hers and grabbed it from him. He looked at her stunned. All she could think to do was to call their new therapist, Dr. Joseph. She could barely stop crying trying to get the words out to him. He told her to take a few breaths. She thought, Connor wouldn't hit me while I was on the phone with a doctor, would he? When she explained to Dr. Joseph what had happened, he said, I think we should get you a prescription for tranquilizers. He sounded mildly annoyed. I'll call it into your pharmacy right now and we can talk this all out next week at our appointment. She told him no. It was an emergency. He didn't know what Connor was going to do to her after their conversation. She moved as far away from Connor as the phone would allow. Dr. Joseph said, We're all adults here. What's going to happen between now and the appointment? We're going to have plenty of time to talk this all through. I'll schedule you a special appointment for tomorrow if it'll make you feel better. Leslie knew she was alone again. Not even a mental professional would help her. She told him it was fine. This incident just makes my blood boil. We're told constantly, ask for help, go to a professional etc etc but if these are the kinds of reactions victims get and you still have the audacity to ask why we don't leave then you will never understand it. Connor was surprisingly calm and rational when she hung up. He said he came across the diary when he was looking for some paperwork. He read the diary to try to understand her better. Wasn't that what they were aiming to do by going to therapy to understand each other better? No she thought. I thought we were going to therapy to get you to stop hitting me. She eyed him warily, but he seemed sincere. Something fishy was going on here. Ed came over for dinner one night and while Connor was in the bathroom, he put his hands over Leslie's and said, Do you know that your voice trembles when Connor comes into the room? What is going on? Can I help? Her eyes widened, but she couldn't get the words out. He repeated it, saying, When he wasn't in the room, her voice was steady. Holy shit, she thought. He knew. It's so shocking to victims to realize that someone else knows what's happening because of how you're behaving. You think that you're doing so well at hiding it and pretending that everything is perfect. Then when someone sees through that facade, it is truly, truly a shock. He asked if she was okay, if she was safe here day in and day out. The concern in his eyes startled her. He said he thought long and hard about bringing this up, but he needed to know, was she okay? 
She thought, how could it be so obvious that she was afraid of Connor? So fearful she couldn't even say what she thought in his presence without trepidation. Who else had noticed? What else was she oblivious to? Before she could ask Ed anything, Connor came back. She couldn't stop thinking about what he had said. It was true. She was terrified of Connor. Being afraid had become her normal state. She was always tensed for her next mistake, his next attack. The only person she was hiding the truth from was herself. This is such an important revelation. She's finally admitting to herself that what is happening to her is wrong and that she's terrified. It's her slowly becoming aware of the abuse, the abuse she's suffering. This is probably the first big breakthrough since admitting to Winnie that Connor hits her. They spent that Christmas with Leslie's family but were still sleeping at their own house. Later in the afternoon they went to a nearby ski resort. Connor had never skied before and her dad tried to give him a lesson. When they got home that night Leslie started making dinner. Connor leaned against the stove with his arms folded. You know how could you have just taken me to the top of that mountain without even teaching me how to do that snowplow thing? There was an edge to his voice and she knew better to not make light of his childish words. Her shoulders knitted together. You set me up to be humiliated in front of your family. Your father actually tried to put me between his legs to teach me. She told him she hadn't done it on purpose, but she was sorry. With Connor in a foul mood, it was always wise to say as little as possible. He kept going. Just like my mother, you expect me to be able to do everything by myself. He was shouting now and turning red. She stepped as far away as possible without making it obvious. Do you know how that feels? Do you know how stupid I felt in front of your father? You just left me there all by myself. I would never do that to you. She kept telling herself to just breathe. She just wanted to be at the house with her family, safe, not alone here, because he refused to even spend one night with them. She said she was sorry again and that she told him that 20 times already and had had enough. That was all the excuse he needed. He grabbed her and shoved her against the wall. He grabbed her neck and started to squeeze. He shoved her to the floor and paused to catch his breath. While he was figuring out what to do next, she picked herself up, grabbed the keys and ran down the basement stairs. Where to? Leaving was easy. The hard part was figuring out where to go. She had no coat, no wallet, no money, no driver's license. The dog was outside in the cold. Connor may or may not bring him in. She longed to drive back to her dad and tell him what Connor had done to her, thinking how good it would feel to hear him say, OK, babe, I'll take care of you. Come back to Washington with me tomorrow. But when she really thought about it, shaming her father with her mistakes was worse than facing Connor. She couldn't stomach his disappointment and annoyance. What if he didn't believe her or refused to help? Keeping Connor's attack secret seemed her only way of preventing the violence from being real, the only piece of this ugly situation that she could control. She was alone again with the truth. She would be alone forever. So she drove back, let the dog in and got into bed beside Connor. Connor and Ed had been encouraging Leslie to also apply to Harvard Business School. She suspected Connor just wanted a companion. She also applied to other schools. She kept getting fat envelopes from all of her school's clearly acceptance letters. Connor kept getting rejections. More unfairness in the world. The worst was when she saw a thin envelope from HBS in the mail. She called Winnie at her job in the admissions office of HBS and told her to withdraw her application before Connor got home from work. So she is willing to give up on an amazing opportunity like going to Harvard Business School because she is so scared of his reaction. She told Connor she didn't get in either. He finally got accepted to another school and somehow they decided to go to that same school together. 
He also convinced her to take out loans for his tuition in her name because of his spotty credit history. Leslie asked herself, did this prove that most of me wanted to stay with Connor, that I loved him despite his attacks? Was I a pathetic, battered woman? Or was I scared, rightly so, of the rage my abandonment would provoke? Was I an idiot, a coward, a good and loyal wife? Was I afraid of admitting the truth, that my so-called soulmate, the man I had chosen among the millions of single men in New York City, the man my friends and family had su suspected might be trouble, had turned out to be a man who held a gun to my head, were not telling me I was the wonder girl of his dreams? I could not leave Connor. Even though I had no hope he would stop beating me down, even though my voice shook when he entered the room, when it came to a choice between him and me, I chose Connor. People really don't understand how truly agonizing this really is. It's not as simple as just leave him. There's so much shame and guilt attached to it. And you also kind of think that you're overreacting, but you also know that they're doing wrong, but you still love them. And because they're not always bad, you cling on to those good moments to justify yourself not leaving and still believing that they can change. So they upped and left Vermont for Chicago, where they would be attending school. They couldn't sell the house, so ended up renting it to a couple. She told Winnie one day before they left, maybe our relationship will get better at business school. They had rented a second floor apartment in an old Victorian house split into six apartments. Each day, Leslie got up early, dressed quickly and quietly and snuck out to walk blue before she left for campus. She always had the same thought as she locked the apartment door before he woke up. Phew. I remember this feeling so well. Uh, you know, my abuser would work in the evenings and overnights. And when he left every evening, I would watch out the window because I could see the whole street um, from my window. And I would watch until he turned the corner at the end of the block just to make sure that he was really gone. And it was only then that I would just breathe a sigh of relief. I was free for a few hours. And then I would have the opposite feeling when I came home from work knowing that he was at home. She stayed on campus as long as possible every evening. Because of their different schedules, she rarely saw Connor during the day. Night was different. He came up behind her desk one night and said he told her he wanted her to be in his study groups, but he'd heard that she had joined someone else's study group. She said she didn't want to join that group that he was in because they were more advanced than her and she would learn more in the other study group. They had already discussed this. She turned back around to her desk and he barked, Hey, I'm not finished talking to my wife. She turned around and raised her eyebrows. They weren't in Vermont anymore. In business, reputation meant everything. So being known as someone who had a bad temper could doom one's chances of getting a job, could make an entire industry or career off limits. She knew Connor knew that too. He didn't want it to get out that he hit her. It would have destroyed their facade of the successful married couple who'd come to business school together. So things have clearly changed now and they both know it. Leslie here is much more confident and Connor is more aware that he has to be careful. I had a similar period of time where I had started to become more confident. I had told a couple of friends about what was happening and I had also told him that what he was doing to me was abusive. Um, I'd made lots of friends at work and I was going out to like various dinners and nights out. I was slipping away and I was getting more independent and he knew he had to be careful now as he didn't have as much control over me because I was no longer as isolated as I'd once been. 
Leslie crossed her arms over her chest. Connor said he didn't want her to be in any study groups with men. She laughed and shook her head. The school is 70% male, Connor. What are you talking about? She looked up at him. He could hit her tonight and she'd still escape to the safety of campus tomorrow. She stayed seated. She learned it was harder for him to go after her in a chair, especially a wooden one with arms. She grabbed the seat bottom, digging her nails into the wood so hard they gouged half moon marks in the varnish. She tried to keep her voice breezy. She said they both needed to network with other students and professors. That's why they were here. No, he yelled, bending over her. He was shaking his finger inches from her nose. There can only be one person in charge of a family. That's me, babe. I am king of the castle here. He leaned closer. The freedom Leslie had found as school had loosened his control over her. He was trying to find another way to tighten his grip. For a second, disgust trumped her fear. I can't believe I'm married to someone who believes such a stupid thing, she said. He stared at her furious. Then he leaned over her desk, alive with anger. He looked around as if trying to get a hold of his rage. He brushed all of her finance notebooks across the living room with one sweep of his arm. She said, is that all you're going to do tonight, Connor, or are you going to hit me too? Her voice broke just a little. Somewhere in her, she was still afraid. In one final gesture, he threw the massive finance textbook at her feet and grabbed his jacket. He slammed the front door open so hard the brass knob went through the plaster of the wall and stayed there impaled. Leave, she whispered. I don't know if I love you anymore. She didn't say it very loud. It wasn't true anyway. She would still be there waiting when he came back. Winnie asked her one day if she was going to stay with Connor. She stated that she knew she couldn't have children with him. She could never do that to a child. Winnie said, then you have to leave him soon. She knew she was right but she had no idea how to say goodbye to Connor. What stretched before her was a lifetime of contortion to avoid tripping Connor's temper. At times she'd succeed, she'd fail occasionally because how can you dodge something as unpredictable as rage? She couldn't imagine being beaten while carrying a baby inside her. She pictured jobs she couldn't take, lies she'd tell her friends, a life without children. Mostly though, she tried to think about the future. What was she... What she was really asking herself was, would she ever have a life without Connor? One of the things I'm so glad of is that I never had kids with my ex. I never really was a person who wanted kids anyway, and still I'm not. But I definitely think that he would have used it as another reason to trap and control me. I had the privilege of being able to make a complete clean break away from him when I left without having to think of shared custody of a child always keeping me linked to him what she said here about failing occasionally to dodge his rage really resonated with me I remember those days of going out of my way to appear as quiet and unassuming as possible anything to make myself almost invisible to him but of course it isn't what you are or what you're not doing it's them that are the problem Leslie was offered a summer job at Johnson & Johnson in New Jersey. This meant three months apart from Connor, only seeing him on a few weekends. He wasn't happy about it, but he also didn't protest. She took the, her dog, Blue, with her. She would be living in her aunt's beach house. Connor came to visit her occasionally, but there were too many people around for them to fight, as her aunt, husband and cousins would also visit. Three months alone without being hit, without having to hide bruises and swollen eyes, brought a tincture of clarity, as well as questions that were too confusing to answer. Why had she never directly confronted Connor about the violence? Of course she'd always been afraid of her, 
of his reaction, but that wasn't his whole her whole excuse. She'd always thought it wouldn't do any good to question him, to tell him the violence was unacceptable, to threaten to leave him, because she'd never leave him, and she knew it wasn't his fault. He'd been abused far worse as a kid than the stuff he did to her. Now that she's had time to step away and not have to worry about coming home to violence every day, she's beginning to question even more what's been happening to her. I remember four years after I moved to New York was the first time I was able to go home to Ireland. Um, I went for two weeks and I went without him and it just gave me so much freedom and clarity. I never felt better and I knew when I got back I had to start making plans to leave him. But here she also says that she knew it wasn't Connor's fault. So she's still in denial a lot here. She's not fully accepting that it is abuse. And again, she's trying to blame other people for Connor's behavior. She began to do more research about abuse. She tracked down an assistant professor who was working on his PhD on the behavioral psychology of batterers, a unique perspective in a field where research focused on the victims. I've gone over the research she discovered here in an early episode in detail, so I'll just briefly run over the main points that he made here. Every man he had ever studied who became batterer as an adult was physically abused as a child by people he loved deeply. They learned as a child that violence is an acceptable way to deal with strong emotions and an effective way to dominate others in order to protect themselves. They don't think that their behavior is wrong. The men he studied would not get any emotional satisfaction or release unless they were intimately involved with the object of their violence. They often abuse their children too. They believe that their partners provoke the violence. For most abusers, it is impossible to admit that they've done wrong and take responsibility for their behavior because it requires them to admit for many years they've been hurting other people whom they love in exactly the same way they were hurt as children. There is a pattern to the violence that spans different relationships. Their behavior is highly unpredictable. They have an uncanny sense for what the woman wants and needs emotionally, and he meets that need. Prince Charming and Knight in Shining Armor is often used by their partners to describe them in the beginning. They are like predators seeking prey. No abuser introduces violence early on. He waits until he is secure, until the woman is trapped emotionally or financially. He knows how to lay the groundwork for a successful violent relationship. The best cons are the ones that make the victims want to participate. Once the relationship is established and the abuser feels secure, he introduces the threat of violence. If the woman doesn't balk at the threat of violence, then soon he will actually hit, choke or shove her. The violence then gradually escalates and the frequency increases, as does the woman's denial and emotional numbness. She feels trapped and he feels free to do what he wants. He works on her emotionally too to make sure she doesn't tell anyone. It is crucial to convince her that the violence is her fault. During all of this, Leslie couldn't speak. He had just described her and Connor's relationship in extremely accurate detail. She asked him if they ever get better, do they ever stop? He said, no one he'd ever studied had ever stopped being violent. There is no one he had worked with who he could confidently say he'll never batter anyone again. She asked him what advice he would give to the victim. He said he would tell her that she's probably the last person on earth who could help him. She should help herself and stay away from him. He'd warn her to be extremely careful because leaving an abuser often provokes the deadliest rage from them. She is letting the world know he has done wrong. 
Leslie certainly knew a lot more now, but she didn't love Connor any less and she still had no idea what to do. One day when he was visiting, she told Connor, if you ever hit me again, it's over. I love you and what we used to have together too much to have this between us. He looked at his feet and said, all right, I hear what you're saying. I promise I'll never do it again, Leslie. I love you. I want to be happy with you and Blue, my little family. Now, this may seem like a breakthrough. She had the courage to say it to him and he accepted it and said he'd never do it again. This never works, though. It actually serves as more control because he knows that she's still under his control. She's not leaving him. She's telling him directly that she wants to stay with him. I did this several times and never had an apology, just like a Connor here doesn't apologize, but was told, I won't do it again, I'll be better, etc, etc. Six months went by without him hitting her. He started being better and even thoughtful and romantic. He bought her gifts. They planned a trip to Paris for his birthday. Winnie called her to say, have a great trip the night before, and she was glad that things were better as she'd been so worried about her. Leslie said, Win, you know he still gets angry. At times, it makes him angrier since the pact, I think. He's got no release, but there's been no violence. Winnie said he deserved a lot of credit. Leslie felt like saying, fuck you, Winnie. Damn her for speaking the truth so bawly. She still loved him just as much, but if it came to a choice between her and him, she knew now that she would choose herself. A fleeting desire to never see Connor again flitted through her, but he went out and got them dinner and she said she they should eat right away so she could pack. After she'd been packing for about 30 minutes, Connor stood in the door watching her, a half smile on his lips. I've decided not to go, he said. A chill went through her. The old Connor had cancelled plans before, sometimes waiting until she stood at the door dressed and made up, so she shouldn't have been surprised, but this time she was. She knew better than to show how she felt. She continued what she was doing. I said we're not going, he repeated. She nodded to let him know she'd heard. She didn't ask why. He went back to the living room. He returned half an hour later. She was lying on the bed with the bag still half packed around her. He asked if she had called to cancel the tickets. What he meant was, I'm the boss here. Did you do what I ordered? She knew why he wanted to cancel. The trip had been her way to celebrate starting over, but even good news had to be celebrated on his terms only. Even a joyous occasion frightened him if he couldn't control it. The man she had imagined in Paris was not the man in the door. That man was gone, if he'd even ever existed. There was, was no old Connor. She'd been lying to herself since August, maybe long before August. She told him no because she was still going. She had worked too hard this semester. For the first time in three years, she had to know what he would do if she told him how she really felt. A long silence followed. Then a gentle whoosh of air came toward her. Her head crashed into the hardwood flooring. How dare you? You can't go without me, you selfish bitch. He picked up her favorite wedding photo and broke it over her head. Small bloody slits sprang up across her face. She pleaded silently, no, don't let this happen. I do still love him, he is my family. He kicked her in the ribs. She felt like Connor had been bottling up his rage from the last six months. Every punch and kick felt choreographed, like he had known this moment would come, even as she hoped every day it wouldn't. She tried to reach the phone, but Connor moved too fast. She heard the sounds of her own screams. He grabbed her neck with both hands. He pulled her off the floor and back onto the bed, forcing her into the mattress with the weight of his body. He squeezed her throat. The room faded. Everything went starry. She felt a deep quiet. 
When she came to, she had no idea how much time had passed. Connor stood by the head of the bed, watching her as if he were afraid to touch her again. He flinched when she opened her eyes. He was wet with perspiration. Her stomach and ribs felt as if an enormous hunk of ice lay wedged inside her. A parade of faces she might never see again passed before her. Her love for Connor seemed completely irrelevant. She slowly sat up. She raised her hands in surrender. Her body felt small and useless compared to his. She said she loved him. She knew he didn't want to do this. Of course she wouldn't go to Paris. She would do anything for him. She was sorry. She is really pleading for her life here. Suddenly someone began pounding on the apartment door. The spell was broken. She could feel glass in her face, a burn around her throat and a fire in her ribs. Connor bowed his face and began to cry. He put his apartment keys on the bedside table, a twisted peace offering. He whispered, I'll call you tomorrow. As soon as he left, she reached for the phone. She was alive. She called the police. So I'm going to leave it there. Um, this one was a lot shorter than the first one. I could have packed everything into this one episode, but there's so much in the next part of the story that I really want to get into in detail. So I kind of wanted to keep it just for um, one long episode by itself. Um, I hope that you are sticking with the story. This is one of the most important stories, probably the most important story I think that I've told so far because you know Leslie herself she's written a book on this she does talks on this all the time um she's very much continually working in this field so um she has so much research and information out there that I think it's so so important um a lot of what she says um probably all of what she says actually just resonates with me so much that I just want to get it all out there um as I've said a million times before I constantly quote her and talk about her and reference her book and her TED talk she's amazing so I just want to get as much of her story out there as possible again her book Crazy Love I highly recommend reading it I'm going to link it again in this episode bio and yeah I'm going to try and get this last episode out hopefully this week um fingers crossed um now that I'm feeling better again, I'm going to try and uh, record a lot more, fit more into my days off from work. Um, but yeah, I hope you guys have a great week and don't let anything get you down. Positive vibes. I'm going to try and keep this positivity going for a while. I had a really bad month. Um, I ended last week's episode on a really negative note because I was a little, ooh, after telling you that particular story. Um, so this time we're ending positive, um, happy vibes all around, sending you nothing but love and a great week. And thank you so much for listening. Again, please subscribe and rate the podcast on whatever platform you're listening. It all helps me. And thank you so much if you have done it already. And again, reach out to me on social media at Mangogs or at IPVME. I will answer every DM. Thank you so much.